new episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and we will be talking today about income inequality and some of the ways we could raise some new tax revenues in Vermont to hopefully take care of some basic needs such as infrastructure, education, healthcare, and housing to just name a few. I want to welcome to the show regular contributor Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. Hello, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Good morning, Olga. So nice to see you today. Good to see you too. And for the first time, I'm so happy to meet you, Annika. I want to introduce Annika Hiowell. Did I get it right? Oh, good. Kyle Weil, it Kyle rhymes. Kyle Weil, sorry, thank you. It's such like a nice little prompt, that rhyming. It is, it really is. Kyle Weil, she is the Fund Vermont's future campaign manager with the Public Assets Institute, and we're going to talk today with her about the Fair Share for Vermont proposal, which is being led by Vermont's Future Coalition, and I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that very surface level. Annika, because I would love you to tell us a little bit more about the coalition and the work it's been doing and how it came to this 3% personal income surcharge on wealthier incomes. Great. So, And can we like start all the way at the beginning, like how you all got together and what that story is? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's start at the beginning. So hi, it's so good to see you both. So the Fund Vermont's Future Coalition is a group of organizations and individuals, which includes the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont, Public Assets Institute, Vermont Conservation Voters, the Vermont Early Childhood Advocacy Alliance, the Vermont National Education Association, the Vermont Natural Resources Council, Voices for Vermont's Children, and three individual representatives. This group actually came together a few years ago to advocate for a state budget and revenue process that prioritizes the needs of all Vermont residents while building budgets and raises sufficient revenue to meet those needs. Earlier this year, the coalition launched the Fair Share for Vermont campaign, which is a campaign to increase taxes on the wealthiest Vermont residents to build a state that works for everybody who lives here. So yeah, we launched the campaign in early November and presented a proposal to increase taxes on the wealthiest 2% of Vermont residents to raise really significant revenue for the state. So so the reason that we came to this specific proposal was that- um, Wait, Annika, before we get to the proposal, I want to know like why the coalition, like why those people, how they got together. I want like, will you tell a story? Yeah, let's, it's story time. So- These groups represent a lot of different interests. You know, they're focused on everything from the environment to education to to economic well-being of of Vermonters. And over the years, these groups came together because they realized that they were all fighting over the same pot of money. And there was just consistent rhetoric that Vermont doesn't have enough to take care of all Vermont residents. And they came together because they were like, we know that we know that the state does have sufficient resident or sufficient sufficient resources to take care of all of our residents and we need to advocate as a group to do so. So the group has been historically really focused on the process of budgeting, the process of raising revenue, and these fundamental ideals behind that, these ideals that we do have enough, that we we don't have to live in a scarcity framework. So our, our advocating together instead of advocating just specifically for their unique causes, you know, for the environment, for families, with this understanding that all of our issues are important and that we need sufficient revenue to take care of all of these different sectors and all of these different issues. I think that these groups are also really focused on 
we're, we're focused on inside the state house and we're also in, interested in, in outside the state house. We're, we're seeing a lot of political wins inside the state house, sorry, wins with a D, but also wins with without a D that are showing us that it, it is possible for the legislature to pass really crucial legislation to take care of all Vermonters. You know, we've we've seen the legislature re- leap into action in recent years to, to fund really crucial programs and to keep us safe during the pandemic, to raise money for childcare, for things like that. And outside of the state house, we also see that there's really significant support for proposals like this. So, so polling from our partners shows that you know, Vermont residents want to increase taxes on the wealthiest Vermont residents to take care of all of us. It's it's something that is shown consistently over the years. And this group came together to basically put that into action, mm-hmm. actually change in that way. Emily, does that? Yes, that satisfies my need for a morning story. Thank you very much. Olga. Oh, good, 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 good. You may ask your next question. <laughs> I, I think one thing I, I would like to add to what Annika said is just to remind folks that in some ways, this framework of budgeting to people's needs is not new. We do have the people's budget and, and we have all the work that was done behind that. Emily or Annika, would you just quickly remind folks about that concept of the people's budget and the legislation behind it? Yeah, I don't have the specific legislation pulled up in front of me, so this will be word for word. But the people's budget is basically a framework to ensure and basically dictate that the budget has to take care of the needs of all Vermonters. And this goes into a variety of different buckets from like education and the environment and all of these things that we've been talking about for the past few minutes. But it's basically saying that the budget has to focus on the needs of all Vermonters. The people's budget also was a really interesting and incredible piece of legislation because it's one of the first pieces of legislation in the states in the in the United States that requires that a state budget have a human rights framework and is always looking at ensuring that the budget is taking care of the needs of all of the state citizens. So it's it's really exciting. Obviously, it's a work in progress. And a lot of that is going back to this need for revenue. So part of this story is that in order to actually fulfill the requirements of the people's budget, the state needs to be raising sufficient revenue to actually do so. You know, when when we're talking about fulfilling all of these needs, all of that comes back to public investment and all of that public investment is driven by taxes. It's this circular story that is all related to each other. One of the things that I really appreciate about in sort of your story about the coalition, Annika, is how each of those partners with these very different sort of specific interests that they generally work in came together and understand that sort of an investment in one will benefit all of them. That by investing in Vermont's people, by making sure that Vermont is working for Vermonters basically, that all of those uh, that like will have more revenue, that other basic needs will be met, that like we really do live in a circular economy and that when we work for sort of like on one issue, we're working for all of us. And the fact that all of these separate organizations were able to come together and see that clearly enough to work in coalition with each other is really profound to me. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. And I think that it also points to how intertwined we are at every level of our society in Vermont. When we think about the individual level, the community level, the issue level, all of these things affect one another. And that's why it's really important to step back and look at it at a systemic level, which is what the Fund Vermont's Future Coalition does. To break it down, if I heard correctly at the press release you held earlier in November, if this proposal were to pass it would enact a 3% tax surcharge or personal income surcharge 
on annual incomes of 500000 or more. It could raise approximately $98 million a year in state tax revenue. And the proposal, I think you mentioned earlier, would impact the wealthiest 2% of Vermont earners. Any other details in there that you wanted to add? That is, that's all correct. I, I also do want to emphasize that it's a marginal tax surcharge. So for the first $500,000 that somebody makes, this proposal wouldn't affect them at all. It's for the first dollar after $500,000. And that's why it's affecting under 2% of Vermont residents. Um, but that's that's all that's all correct. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for saying that, Annika, because one thing I was hoping, and I was excited, Emily's on the show, of course, because as head of the Ways and Means Committee in the House, Emily, taxes are your jam. And so I was hoping both of you could explain to me like the language of a surcharge, like how is that different from another type of tax? Again, how is this operating? What exactly does this mean in the big world of Vermont's pot of taxes? Does that make sense? It does. I was actually recently at our local Brattleboro Legislative Forum, and there was four of us up at the front, and people were asking questions, and I was like, on my fifth answer that I managed to somehow bring back to taxes, and I was like, oh my god, who have I become? This is ridiculous. And I started sort of like joking about it with the crowd. But I really do think that sort of, you know, our state investments are thinking deeply about tax policy is, is how we make... Vermont really work for all of us. And almost any concern that one of my constituents has can be brought back to state revenues eventually. But in this case, so we have sort of like different pieces of the tax of what makes a tax. There's the tax base. That's sort of who is subject to the tax, who's responsible for the tax on income taxes. That's anyone who has income. But if we want to think about the base for the surcharge, it's incomes over 500,000, right? And sort of that's what a marginal tax rate is. It's it sort of like brings the base to just the income that's over 500000 And then we have brackets. Mm-hmm. And the brackets are usually, it's where the marginal rates are impact, are levied. And so that would be, that bracket would be sort of the bracket that's over $500,000. And then there's the rate. And the rate, the brackets tend to move around with, they usually have inflation adjusters in them. Mm-hmm. And when you say brackets, I think most people might be used to hearing the phrase like, oh, what income bracket are you in? Yes, exactly. So, you know, folks, the portion of your income that you make that's like less than $50,000 would be sort of, that's one bracket, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have another bracket, say over 100000 And they might be taxed differently. Yes, and they are taxed differently. Okay. Thank you. The idea is like, and that's true for everyone. So like for everyone, the first, whatever, I don't have the brackets memorized, but like your first $40,000 worth of income is all taxed the same way, regardless of how much your total income is. Mm -hmm. And part of that is to avoid disincentives around or incentives, but basically to like keep people from working really hard to keep their income like right below 99,000. Right. Because if you don't have marginal tax rates, you just have like one clear tax rate that all your income is taxed at a higher rate. If you're over one hundred thousand dollars, you might work like really hard to make ninety nine thousand dollars a year or your accountant would work very hard on that. You probably (laughs) Generally, that kind of sort of like 
income and tax manipulation happens. It's done by wealth managers and not by individuals. I don't, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. So anyway, so you have the bracket and the brackets sort of move with inflation and you have the rate, which usually stays static unless it's changed by legislative action. And what the surcharge does is it's adds an extra percent to the rate. And it's sort of like on some level, it could be across brackets right now in statute. There's only one bracket that's at that in that sort of after 500,000. Mm-hmm. But if the brackets do move, that surcharge would stay right there. Many years ago, during the last recession, we passed something called the Snelling surcharge. That was actually a temporary surcharge. And this is like, a, when we talk about sort of like the stories behind things, Olga, this is like the one of the classics of the Vermont legislative story. So there's like, if I had to like stack like legislative stories that have like much valiance in the building, salience in the building, I don't even know which of those two words, they both actually fit the situation. I would say like the failure of healthcare reform under Shumlin Mm -hmm. is like a top one. Everyone remembers the great failure and never wants to try again because it was so devastating, Mm -hmm. right? There's when we passed gay marriage and everyone remembers the great conquest and how everyone just like lived and voted their values and how powerful that was. And like civil unions has like also that same like strength for people despite some challenges there, you know, policy-wise. And then there's the Snelling surcharge, which is the great story of bipartisan success, right? So we have like the six, we have the values story, we have the failure story, and then there's the bipartisan love story. And the (laughs) Snelling surcharge is the bipartisan love story. And, you know, Richard Snelling, Republican, governor, recession, not enough money, in the general fund to meet the needs of Vermonters. The Snelling surcharge was introduced. Similarly, it was an extra surcharge on higher income Vermonters on higher incomes. I don't like to say it's like higher income. I don't, it's not about people, it's about their incomes. Mm-hmm. On higher incomes and it saved the day and Vermont continued to grow and succeed. And that that is a surcharge. Is it still in effect? It is not in effect. It was a temporary surcharge just to ride out that particular wave of challenges. And the surcharge that's proposed here is a permanent surcharge, but you know, the legislature, I'm sure will do what it does with the proposal. I appreciate that. I appreciate that background in part because I, for a lot of people, regardless of where you sit in the world of incomes, when you start hearing income tax, a lot of people panic. And so I think it's just helpful for them to remember that we're already being taxed at different levels throughout our incomes and this is this is one more surcharge and and again the one we're talking about is only two percent of vermont incomes are subject to this and i am not one of those two percent and i don't think either of the two of us are either and i again because it's only two percent the vast majority of vermont incomes are not going to be subject to this yes well it brings me to the question annika I read some of the coverage of the press conference that was held in November. Some of the press went and talked to Governor Scott. And we do know that Scott taxes are not Scott's favorite thing. And his response was, well, will this mean the wealthier Vermonters will leave the state? And I'm sure you've heard that question too. And I'm, I'm wondering, what's your thought process on that? 
Yeah, we we hear this question come up time and time again. And more than anything, I think that it's really one of the best examples of really successful anti-tax rhetoric. Mm. The idea of wealthy people fleeing from states to avoid paying their fair share in taxes is a myth. And data consistently shows that high and middle income earners. So when we're, when we're thinking about it, wealthy people have the resources to live in communities that they want to live in. And, and attractive communities have good schools, clean downtown, sufficient housing, etc. And all of these things are aided by public investment using revenue raised by taxes. So when the wealthiest pay their fair share in taxes, it actually builds communities that wealthy folks want to live in and want to move to. I also want to take this a step forward and and think about this at a really real and human level. I love living in Vermont. I know that the two of you love living in Vermont. Most people that I know really actively want to live in Vermont. And wealthy folks have the economic resources to choose where to live, and they've chosen to live in Vermont. So something that we've been hearing a little bit more lately is this idea of like, moving for moving to a second house for like six months and one day or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, you know, fleeing from taxes and hiding from the state that you want to live in in order to avoid taxes is something that just really doesn't make sense at the individual level. I also want to want to talk about the fact that this is more complicated than the anti-tax rhetoric makes, makes it seem. So all states do need revenue. Vermont is not alone in this. And Different states have different processes to make up that revenue. You know, we are really interested in these income or wealth taxes because they're more progressive, but, you know, other states can make up for that in things like sales taxes. So, so it's not just- For New Hampshire that actually makes up a vast swath of its revenue in fees that Mm -hmm. are really impossible to track. Yeah. Yeah. My friends in New Hampshire say it's, it's pay fees or die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a good saying, saying. But yeah, it's it's not like you're going to leave Vermont and stop paying taxes. That's just not really how it works. And and it can also change things with your property taxes if you're a resident or not a resident of Vermont or other states, you know. And and all of this is to say that it's a really complicated issue and it's really easy for folks who resist changing our tax structure to make blanket statements about the future and blanket statements about wealthy folks leaving the state. And it's it's easier to do this because it can be simple. It's kind of just like a fear-mongering tactic, but it isn't actually rooted in any data. You know, it's it's consistently shown time and time again across our data in the state, across, you know, our, our migration reports, things like that, data nationwide that wealthy folks move way less than low and middle income individuals. Wealthy folks have the ability to choose where they want to live. And we are lucky to live in a state that a lot of wealthy folks want to live in because Vermont is a wonderful place to live. And I would, you know, a few more details on that. Our absolutely nonpartisan joint fiscal office wrote a very comprehensive memo a few years ago about how this is a farce and there's no evidence for wealth flight. And frankly, if folks were with wealth were going to leave because of Vermont taxes, they would have left already. There are absolutely tax states that have much lower taxes for high income folks. Absolutely. Like, do not deny that. We will not win that race to the bottom, right? But those folks don't want to live in Mississippi. They want to live here because, as Annika said, we invest in our public infrastructure 
as best we can. We need to do a better job. We have strong communities where people take care of each other. Taxes are a great example of that. It's just not a thing. And somehow it's rhetoric that we use over and over and over again when it's still just like, and it's one of those talking points Similar in some ways, I think, to the abortion debate where like when someone says it, I just want to like stand up and be like, not a thing, not a thing. You can't say it. It's just not a thing. (laughs) But like, that's not really what I'm supposed to do on the radio. It's not really what I'm supposed to do on like debate on the house floor. But that's like all I have when someone says that, like, stop, it's not true. (laughs) But a lot of people feel it is. And so we have to keep talking about it until the conversation changes. Yeah. But I wish like, you know, in the governor's press, like briefings, I could just like press a button and be like, no. (laughs) Instead of the staple button, the easy staple button, it could be the no button. False, false, false. (laughs) I'm a little curious. We have only a few minutes before the end of this first half, but I am curious about how the coalition came to the the $500,000 level. And the reason I ask, and we'll, we, we may talk about this later in the show, there's a lot of states where 500000 is nothing, right? It, it speaks to me a little bit how incomes are low in Vermont in some, in some ways in general. And so I'm, I'm just curious how you, how you came to that level. You know, there are some states where it would have started at like a million or above. So I hear that. And like, I want Annika to answer sort of the more technical thing, but like, that's wild. The idea that like, we might even say like $500,000 is nothing. Like, I think even if I lived in say New York City, I still wouldn't think, and I have lived in New York City, I still wouldn't think like $500,000 is nothing. I would think like, this is a state where a lot of people have a lot of wealth and a lot of people have very little wealth, but like $500 is like something no matter where in the world you are. It is, but I'm just, I'm talking about Vermont wages in general. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to dig more into that as well and just highlight how much $500,000 really is. This isn't owning $500,000. This isn't having $500,000 in a bank account, which is also a lot of money. This is making $500,000 per year. That's, That's a lot of money. And I, I want to also speak to how we landed on this number. And you're right when we're when we're talking about Vermont compared to other states, Vermont doesn't have a lot of these like uber high earners of these like like you know billionaires, things like that. And that does affect our numbers to some extent. I also want to go back to how we landed on this analysis. We were basically looking at how a one percent surcharge would affect our revenue streams at different levels of income. And we found that a one percent change at the five hundred thousand dollar level would raise around 30, 33,000, or sorry, $33 million each year. We were looking at that, you know, around $100 million, $100 million per year revenue point as a starting point. I'd also like to highlight that we're really excited about this proposal. It does affect under 2% of Vermont residents, which also put us at the $500,000 range. And we're also excited to talk to legislators. And if legislators are interested in the idea, but are wary about that specific number, we are more than willing to have conversations about that. We're really excited about this proposal. We think it's a great idea. We're also not unwilling to, you know, discuss the numbers in more depth once the legislative session comes. Mm -hmm. Great, Annika. So we actually need to take a pause and hear from some of our underwriters here on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. 
your community radio station. We'll be right back. Back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am the host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro, as well as Annika Heilweil from the Fund Vermont's Future Coalition. And we have been talking about Fair Share for Vermont, which is a proposal to enact a 3% surcharge on personal annual incomes of $500,000 or more. We want to thank, as always, Brattleboro Community Television for sharing the video version of our podcast with uh, access stations around Vermont. And, Emily, what do we remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, platform, nor employer, neighbors, friends of the guests, yes. except for Annika, who is, I think, actually speaking on behalf of her employer. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and she says, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Annika, thank you. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about how the coalition chose the $500,000 income mark as the place where this 3% surcharge would begin. And again, just for folks who are joining us, if this were this proposal were to, were to pass, it would raise approximately $98 million a year in state revenue. And it would impact about 2% of the wealthiest households in the state. Is there anything else you think people need to know about how the coalition came to that $500,000 mark and or that 3% surcharge? Yeah, I, I think that I'd just like to highlight once again that these are numbers that are significant. $500,000 and more represent under 2% of Vermont residents. And that 3% surcharge basically is, is the amount that gets us to around $100 million of revenue coming into the state each year. I also want to emphasize that as a coalition, we are dedicated to ensuring that all Vermont residents pay their fair share in taxes in order to build a state that works for all of us. So these are starting numbers. We are really dedicated to raising revenue for the state because we need it in order to take care of the needs of all Vermonters. But we're willing to discuss more about these, uh, these specific numbers as well. You also work with the Public Assets Institute. And every year, I love their state of working Vermont report. I just think it's such a great snapshot of what's been happening for that prior year. And I believe it was the 2021 report that looked at what happened when people were given, had more revenue in their pockets from the pandemic, from many of the emergency supplement payments that people received or support they received around housing and that type of thing. And that report specifically highlighted the change that that extra income made in Vermont's economy. And I'm guessing the, the surcharge would be along the same lines. Right. So when we're, when we're thinking about the surcharge, we're thinking about 
the revenue that it raises to make very real impacts on all of our lives. We're thinking about the the needs that all Vermonters have, you know, when we're talking about Vermonters on at all levels of the income scale. More revenue builds a better Vermont for all of us. We need to to take care of all Vermonters in order to build a state that works for all Vermonters. Thank you for for bringing up uh, public assets work um, and yeah, public assets website is a really great resource to to dig into all of this. But the past few years have really shown what public investment can do for our communities. You know, during the pandemic, Vermont had an influx in federal funding from, you know, those federal level COVID relief bills. And it, it allowed the state to make really crucial investments in, in our economy, in, in our communities, in our individuals. And people have seen the effects of, you know, spending at, at the gov- government level and, and see how They've, they've been able to see how government spending can affect their lives. And I think that that's important because it shows both individuals that it's important to have our systems of taxation and of budgeting in order to have real effects on their lives. And it also shows our legislators that oftentimes, you know, this sort of public investment of investing in our citizens, in investing in our communities is really celebrated by constituents, you know. We all saw the effects of spending in the past few years. We saw how it improved our lives. We saw how it kept us safe during the pandemic. This is all really crucial public investment. And in order to make that public investment, we need to also ensure that everybody is paying their fair share in taxes. Just to follow up for folks who may be watching on Facebook Live right now, during the break, I had mentioned that I have a couple of family members because we were talking about stories and the decisions people make about where they live. And I have a a couple family members who are in the process of moving and they're moving from Vermont to Massachusetts. Since I live in a border town, that's not such a huge thing. (laughs) Like people kind of jump the border all the time, but they are moving to Massachusetts and they're moving. One of the many reasons they chose this particular community, according to my cousin, is the taxes that it has very low taxes and specifically compared to where they were living before in Southern Vermont. However, I'm keeping that very broad because I haven't had a chance to really sit down and say, well, when you say low taxes, what does that mean? And why does that make an impact on the choices you made for house and community and all that sort of thing? This community also happens to be very close to where he works. So that's another good reason. So anyway, I just wanted to follow up that thought to say that, yes, people do sometimes move (laughs) for property taxes, but I don't have the full story. And I know there's more than just the taxes involved in that decision. And so I think that's actually a really interesting piece of this conversation, because from what you said during the break, your cousin, who's the example, but I think other people who Annika was talking about, you know, lower income people actually move more often. And that's because things like taxes are a much, much, much higher portion of their discretionary budget or their non-discretionary budget, right? And when the wealthiest don't pay their fair share, the rest of us need to pay more than our fair share. And so Vermont already does have one of the most progressive tax systems in the country. That does not mean it's progressive. Right. Like this is, again, in a lot of ways compared to what? Right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. So like this is in a lot of ways, again, like most states are involved in a race to the bottom. So like being the best in this category is not mean we're good. But what it looks like is 
if we sort of look at the curve across brackets, and I'm going to try to describe this with words and my hands, because um, I know very few people actually watch the video, but essentially sort of your lowest income brackets do pay a fair, like a lower rate in taxes. They pay less of their total income in taxes than folks in higher brackets. And that's great. And that's mostly because, you know, we have all these great tax credits that we've talked about before on the show. We exempt our sales, we, our sales tax exempts food, which for low income people is a huge portion of their budgets, right? Mm -hmm. And our property taxes has lots of adjustments at the lowest level of income. And so sort of taxes related to housing are also fairly low in that bracket. And then when we get into sort of middle income, and I don't mean like middle class, I mean sort of, sort of the, and it's not like actually technically middle, it's just sort of how people think of middle, but Should, like 50 medium, to- medium be better? No, like, cause really none of, it's more like people's vibe. It's not actually okay. mathematically middle or medium anything. But like, if we're into sort of like your 50 to 125, income, um, the percentage of your income, the percentage of your money that you spend on taxes is actually a fairly flat rate across those, despite mm -hmm. a lot of differences in those brackets. And then it goes up a little bit and then it flattens out again. So if we had perfectly progressive taxes and the wealthiest were paying their fair share and the rest of us weren't making up for it, we would see like a really cleaner curve mm -hmm. at, so at mm -hmm. higher incomes, you'd be paying a higher percentage because you have a lot more discretionary dollars to make up for the rest, right? A high percentage at a very low income means it's really like cutting into your ability to live and spend. At a higher income, it's not. You still have all the discretionary dollars you need and then, or the day-to-day -day or your basic needs dollars. And then you have discretionary on top of that you're sort of paying your taxes out of. So it is true that, across the state, folks in that 50 to 100 and say 25 bracket are actually paying more than their fair share of taxes mm -hmm. and they feel it. And I think, you know, in a, it's probably in property taxes is actually where people feel it the most because of and our- that's the choice that they're making here. Too, very complicated system taxes. we're making. Yeah. But, you know, if someone's moving to a town, especially in Massachusetts, that has very low property taxes, that means that that school is probably a fairly terrible school. Like, I just want to like name that on, you know, and that's like, those are the kind of swaps that we make in our society. Vermont funds our property taxes at the statewide level, which means that people are paying more, but it means we have more equity and equality from school to school in Vermont than we might in some other states who don't fund their school taxes that way. So, you know, Folks in the middle are paying towards having communities that are thriving, rural schools that are still holding those communities together, but again, more than their fair share. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. For that breakdown. Yes. I would like, if both of you don't mind, to take a step back a little bit and talk about Vermont's economy in general. And I start that with a memory as I was preparing for this show, I, as someone who grew up in Vermont, I remember, I have this vague memory of a conversation around income inequality. And we're talking my childhood, so we're talking like the 80s, uh, early 90s. And, and the conversation was, you know, compared to other states, Vermont doesn't have a lot of income inequality at that time. 
Uh However, when you look at like numbers from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities or the Economic Policy Institute, since the 1970 to the mid 2000s, income inequality has grown in Vermont. The numbers I've seen, I don't know if these are the most up to date, but the richest 5% of households have on average 9.6 times more income than the bottom 20% for example, or 3.7 times more income than the middle 20% of folks in Vermont. You know, in general, I I think we use the term income inequality, but we don't actually look at what that means in a community and and why having income inequality grow in Vermont is a problem. I would love to hear from you, Annika, especially with your work with the Public Assets Institute, what are you seeing around income inequality and how's it impacting people? Yeah, thank you. I would I would love to go into that a little bit. And there are a couple there are a couple things that I want to bring up that I want to almost pause after to think about sure. how important these numbers are. And the first is that we know that the the top 1% of Vermonters have around the same total income as the bottom 60%. Mm combined. So that's that's a kind of bonkers number that that I think that we should think about. When we're talking about income and wealth inequality, we're not talking oftentimes about a $10,000 difference, which is still big. We're talking about really big differences between the wealthiest Vermont taxpayers and the folks who are earning the smallest incomes in the state. And this, this also goes back to our tax structures. So we also know that in recent years, the share of income for the highest paid Vermont residents has been growing faster than the share of taxes that they're putting into the system. So basically, we don't have a tax structure that has responded to this massive amount of wealth and income inequality. And the way that we see this play out is, in a lot of ways, how Emily has described, talking about the fact that the when, when we're talking about our income tax structure, it is progressive. But then when you take into account all taxes, it's, it's pretty flat once you get above the lowest incomes. And How this affects us at the day-to-day level is that we aren't raising sufficient revenue to actually take care of all Vermont residents. You know, we we have a tax structure that allows the wealthiest Vermont residents to consolidate wealth at the top. So we're thinking about the total amount of resources that Vermont has, and they're really skewed to just a few individuals. And that affects all of us. You know, it it affects every single person who lives in Vermont because we aren't raising sufficient revenue to to take care of our families, to take care of our communities, and to to focus on the needs of all Vermonters. So when we're we're thinking about wealth and income inequality from a revenue sense, you know, it's, it's a problem in that wealth inequality is showing that there's a lot of wealth at the top. And it's also showing that at the bottom, there's a lot of folks who are really struggling. And it makes sense to to try to correct this so that we can actually take care of everyone. So, you know, that's how it affects us a bit outside of the tax structure. And then as we're looking at the tax structure, the way that this wealth inequality is affecting us is that the tax structure just isn't keeping up. You know, we need to we need to look at our tax structure. We need to think about the fact that a lot of Vermonters' wages are not keeping up with rising costs of living, while wages for pretty few Vermonters at the top are rising a lot faster. So it really just makes sense to to go in with our tax structure and increase taxes on those who are most able to pay in order to take care of all of us. Can I add some story to that? Please do. So as avid listeners know, way back earlier in my career, I worked in international development. And so I spent a lot of time in conflict zones and in places 
that had been colonized in fairly terrible ways by America or Europe. And that meant that they had a scale of inequality that is starker than we'll say America was 10 years ago. I think America is really like getting pretty close to that stark inequality here. And one of the places I worked was South Africa. And one of the things that was so striking to South Africa, years and years about South Africa, years and years after apartheid, still very impacted by apartheid, of course, and by sort of colonial legacy, was the scale of the security industry. Hmm. And I know, you know, there's a lot of race all mixed up in that conversation. There's a lot of race. I just want to stop you quickly. When you say security, that can mean like private guards, but it could also mean securities as in financial tools. Ah, private guards. And I will talk more about what the private guards looked like. And um, what that, you know, there's also a lot of race mixed in with the American experience, right, of income inequality. So I don't, you know, I think these parallels are reasonable. Mm -hmm even though we think of America as sort of different than apartheid, what we experienced here, because it was organized in a different way. But throughout South Africa, but especially sort of in the perimeter of major cities, homes were completely gated off. Communities were completely gated off. And the largest employer in the entire state, in the entire country was security guard, like security companies, Mm. burglary company, you know, burglar alarms, safe rooms, gates, and people patrolling other people's property. The largest employer in the entire country at that point. And that's what income inequality does. It separates people in like both softer ways that I think we could talk about how that works in Vermont, and I will in a second, but like in very, very tangible ways with gated communities where people don't interact with each other and feel unsafe in their own lives because they don't ever see their neighbors. It also, when the wealthiest aren't paying their fair share and we are underfunding basic community services, we wind up with private roads and public roads that are maintained differently, right? Mm -hmm. But everyone has to drive on the public road at some point. We wind up with schools that aren't sufficiently resourced. And some people then spend money, instead of spending money with their taxes, they spend money on private schools, right? And separate their children from their children's community. Mm -hmm. And so there's like so many examples of the way that that kind of income inequality keeps us from just like living our daily lives in a meaningful, connected way, especially in Vermont, where the whole ethos is about these sort of connected, consistent communities where people show up and have the same conversations with each other. It keeps us from talking to each other. Yeah, and we don't have enough of a population to not talk to each other. (laughs) No, we don't have enough population to like shunt some people off, right? We all need to be shopping in the same grocery store because otherwise we like just won't have enough grocery stores. Mm -hmm. And we all need to be going to the same doctors or we like will close our rural hospitals, right? Exactly. That was great, Emily. Uh, Annika, what, what would you like to add to that? I love what Emily just said that we, oftentimes our economies are reduced to numbers that can take the human experience out of it. And I think it's really important, like Emily said, to remember that when we're looking at stratification in social or in economic sectors, that is oftentimes relayed to stratification in in social sectors. I also, I really want to emphasize that none of this is about demonization. None of this is about like, 
winners and losers. This is about all of us winning. And this is about reminding us that, you know, the wealthiest Vermont residents are also our neighbors. They're also in our communities. Um, and they also are doing a really big part in, in paying taxes. But when we're talking about income inequality, we need the systems and the structures that we're creating through legislation to also upend that. Mm -hmm. We talk to a lot of wealthy individuals who are doing their best to, to take care of their communities and to take care of the state. And what we're trying to do is, is to basically create policy that reflects that. And I think that we're really lucky in Vermont to have very close-knit communities. We're, we're lucky to have things like town meeting day. We're lucky to have communities where we're all taking care of our neighbors, where we know each our, our neighbors. And our tax policies and our revenue structures are a really key part in that puzzle as well. Taxes are also a way where we can take care of each other. And our budgets are a way where we can actually put that into, into work. When we're thinking about things like the flood response, when we're thinking about instances where Vermont has stepped up and has taken care of each other, that isn't separate from our economic systems and from our investments into, into our communities um, and, and other public invest investments. A question about this, if this proposal passes, you know, it could generate almost $100 million. And I'll admit, when I was watching the, the press conference, the cheeky little reporter in me was like, oh, new can of tuna for everyone to mew around. Along with this proposal for 3%, is the coalition also maybe coming up with a list of priorities of where this money could go so that, you know, it's not just descended on by all the little hungry kitties who are like, yay, yay, new tuna. <laughs> I, I love your metaphor. Uh, that's incredible. I'm going to be thinking about tuna for a long time. I, I want to, I want to step in and say that we already have a lot of infrastructure in the advocacy sphere for advocating for funds to be spent on specific things. What we don't have a lot of infrastructure for in the advocacy sphere, apart from this coalition, is advocating for revenue to be raised in a progressive way. Each of our partner organizations will be doing their own advocacy outside of this. You know, when we're talking about our environmental partners, they're doing great work advocating for environmental protection and things like that. When we're talking about our uh, our partners who are focused on families, they're going to be advocating for that. Same with, you know, teachers and, and all of the other parts of the coalition. What this coalition has come together to do is basically to work on providing funding mechanisms and talk about the need for progressive revenue. Mm -hmm. We do, you know, through all of our partners, through seeing what we see in the advocacy sphere, we recognize that there are a lot of priorities that uh, the legislature will be confronted with this session and that there are really clear needs for revenue. And what this coalition is really excited to propose is a pathway to actually meet a lot of the needs that we're seeing faced by Vermont communities. So how about you, Emily, you know, sitting in the legislature, if this new uh, flow of money, I won't say can of tuna again, but now it's so tempting, were to make it to the policy level, how do you see the landscape? Do you see that money being moved to things like housing and the environment and education? Or do we still have policies in place that might siphon that money off to other things? Can we call it a bowl of milk, not a can of tuna? If you want, although most yeah. cats are lactose intolerant, so I don't... Really? Know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's the biggest news of this podcast. <laughs> oh my God, I am. I have learned something today. Thank you. 
You're welcome. I had no idea. Wow. I'm like really stunned. I've lost whatever I was going to say. So I, I really appreciate what Annika actually said about the infrastructure, how much infrastructure there is to work on advocating for issues that are really important to really like meet that people's budget goals around ethical investments. I think, you know, we saw the legislature invest in some really profound ground shifting things during the pandemic. And we need continued investments in so many of those issues. But we don't have the infrastructure in the Ways and Means Room. And I mean, like, quite starkly, the Ways and Means Committee Room is a very small room, has always been a very small room, and very few lobbyists walk in the door. And the Appropriations Room is the largest committee room in the building. And every lobbyist spends a lot of time in that door. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that is all well taken care of, Um I'm really feeling very good about what the priorities of my colleagues are right now in terms of what investments look like. And I'm my struggle is actually to not get caught up in like the, is $100 million actually enough? Like, will that even like, you know, shift the ground? And it's like, well, not doing it will shift the ground even more. So I need to keep on like coming back to that for myself. Mm -hmm. We are just about out of time today on the Montpelier Happy Hour. I want to thank you, Annika, for, for joining us. Where can people find more information on the proposal and the coalition? Yeah, so you can go to fairsharevt.org to find out more. You can also go to fundvermontsfuture.org to find out more, but that'll redirect you to fairsharevt.org. Multiple have been put out in different in different articles and radio shows, but go to fairsharevt.org to learn more. There's also a lot of really great resources on, on our state's tax and budget systems at publicassets.org, the Public Assets Institute website. And for folks who follow the podcast, I'll link to those in the show notes as well. Anything you'd like to add, Anika, before we head out that you think people should know at this time? I think I, I want to just... And by talking a little bit to folks and and say to remember that Vermont can have nice things, you know, we're we're hearing a lot of rhetoric. And I think that this drumbeat just continues each year. And it feels like it starts over again at the beginning of the legislative session that Vermont can't afford to take care of all Vermont residents. And I I want to just end this by by saying that this is something that we can't afford not to do, you know. Vermont as a state has the resources that we need to take care of everyone. What we need is a tax structure that is designed to take care of everyone. So I'll, I'll end it with that. But I want to end on on a positive note that this is an exciting thing that we can take care of everybody. And just to push back a little bit against like these these statements that you're all going to hear over and over again that that say differently. Thank you so much, Annika. Emily, if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org, my rarely updated website, where you will find links to all the ways to communicate with me. And if you're a person who loves updating websites and you want to volunteer, please be in touch about that. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7, your community radio station every Friday at 2 and rebroadcast on Wednesday morning. And you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts to the podcast as well. So everyone, have a great weekend. Take care. Bye-bye.